Hi, Jericho Ridge. I'm so pleased to be with you this morning. My husband and I have fond memories of this congregation after joining you on a work service Sunday a few years ago. Uh, but more than that, I also get to bring you greetings from Columbia Bible College, where I serve on faculty and as the director of the Worship Arts Program. So I'll take this opportunity to thank you uh, for being one of our partner churches um, and for working with us to equip young people for service in church and community. That's our goal, and you are definitely a part of that. So thank you. And of course, I'd be happy to chat more with you about CBC because I really do love my job, but perhaps uh, we can move that to chat time after the service or you can shoot me an email if you're watching online because I'd like to, what I'd really like to do is dive right into the emotional deep end. When Brad told me that you were in the midst of a series on emotion, I was really excited because human emotion in the Christian sphere is so often either overemphasized to the point that emotion-driven action and response is glorified, or underemphasized to the point that human emotion is seen as inconvenient, uh, irrational, or even evil. So Christians are often asked either to follow their emotions without question, or to suppress them in unhelpful and unhealthy ways. But the Psalms, which is where we're going to land this morning, do neither of those things. It has often been noted that the Psalms contain every possible human emotion, joy, thankfulness, anger, frustration, confusion, sorrow, even despair. The full spectrum of human emotions is present in the prayers of Israel. And what is particularly beautiful about this is that these examples of prayer clearly tell us that no emotion is taboo in conversation with God. The psalmists don't censor their emotions. We might like them to sometimes, but we find in the psalms a raw, gut-deep emotion. Yet neither do the psalmists seem ruled by these emotions. Even the stormiest of lament psalms contains somewhere a sense of peace and resounds with trust. I think we all have moments when we experience suffering or pain, uh, our own or that of someone we love, or even um, just the suffering we see in the world around us, and we want to ask God, why? We wonder what he's doing. Or perhaps we wonder if he really knows what he's doing, or if he's in control at all. The first time I experienced this in a significant way I was 24. I had spent two and a half months in Ethiopia working with a mission organization there. And quite a few to people told me before I left that my life would be changed or that I would see God in new ways uh, while I was in Africa. And I did. It was a difficult trip for me in many ways, but it was also a time in which I felt alive in my faith. While I was there, Three separate people who did not know each other prophesied over me that God would open doors when I returned to Canada. And in my 24-year-old mind, I, interpret that, I interpreted that as, well, clearly, I'm going to start my folk rock band and become famous when I get back to Canada, for Jesus. And what actually happened when I returned to Canada was a house fire that destroyed my childhood home and sexual harassment in my place of employment that resulted in me losing my job. 
While this was not my first experience of loss and nor has it been the last, it shook me in a new way at the deepest level of my being. Because I expected good things from a good God. And I felt like what I received was a twisting of the parable in Matthew 7. I asked for bread and I received a stone. And that stone was a weight on me. I entered into a deep period of depression. I struggled to get out of bed. I had no idea what I should do next. I was unemployed for months in financial difficulty, living in the basement of my friend's parents' house. And yet, I was still leading worship regularly at my church during that time. And it was so hard to get up there on Sunday mornings, put on my happy face, and sing praise to a God that I really felt had betrayed me. It was that dark period of my life that really began my journey with the Psalms of Lament. They spoke to me. Now, I don't know all of you, but I imagine that each of you can think of a moment of doubt. Maybe it's smaller than my moment, maybe it's bigger. Maybe, probably, you too have asked psalmic questions like, why, Lord, or how long? I think we're all asking that right now, <laughs> how long? Or where are you? What I find so profound about the Psalms of Lament is not just their emotional content or their boldness in prayer, although I love those aspects, but what I find profound is their structure. Because Lament Psalm structure can give proper weight to emotion, can allow us to process and feel what we feel, but also to move through it. So what I'd like to do this morning is unpack that structure using Psalm 13 as an example, because I think we are given in the Psalms a template for structuring our emotion, not ignoring it, but actually engaging with it in a way that allows emotion to be productive. So let's read Psalm 13 together. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So what do we know about the psalmist from this song? The circumstances that surround the psalmist are significant, so significant that it feels to David as if God has abandoned him. The circumstances themselves are concerning. But what really seems to drive the psalmist's emotion here is the first pain that the psalmist names, the pain he feels at God's apparent abandonment. 
How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And this abandonment makes him wrestle with his thoughts. And when we experience suffering of some kind in our lives or in the lives of others, it causes us to ask very difficult questions. It makes us wrestle with our thoughts. It makes us ask questions like, is God really in control? If I affirm that he's in control, is he really good? Does God actually love me? Or is this a sign that he does not? Is God punishing me for something I've done? That's the type of wrestling David's doing here. And these are systematic theology questions, but they are also deep, heart-wrenching questions that cause pain of their own. And here the psalmist wrestles with his thoughts, has sorrow in his heart, and the questions brought forward by his suffering are causing their own pain. And only then do we get to the heart of the circumstance itself, that there are actually enemies, enemies that are about to triumph. And if God does not sustain life, there will be no life left. Yet, despite circumstance, despite the difficult, heart-rending questions they raise, despite the pain of feeling abandoned by God, there's also trust here. Trust in God's unfailing love. So David, having expressed feeling abandoned and forgotten, is able to affirm God's love as unfailing. How is that possible? How can David's heart rejoice in God's salvation when he is actually under threat of death and there seems to be no hope of salvation? How can David say that the Lord has been good to him when his circumstances don't provide any evidence for God's goodness? The answer is in the structure. Theologians have carved up lament psalms in various and complex ways, sometimes dependent on the type of lament a given theologian is dealing with, but the most helpful way for us to approach the lament psalms in general is to look at the four most basic parts of lament structure, parts that are present in every single psalm of lament. And these four parts of a lament psalm are present in every psalm, often but not always in this order. In the order, we'll move through them in. Psalm 13 is nice and clear, and that's why I've chosen it as our text for today, and it moves uh, nicely through these sections in order. Other psalms move back and forth between the parts or even reverse them entirely. And the first structural piece we encounter in Psalm 13, and in most psalms of lament, is the address. In the address, the psalmist identifies the person to whom they are speaking, much like the address of a letter, right? Or when we call out to someone on the street we want to talk to, we address them. So a psalm of lament, like any psalm, implies an audience. The address tells us that a psalm of lament is first and foremost a prayer. It's not whining, which we pretty much do under our breath and does not require an audience although we might prefer one. And it's not simple pouring out of grief or pain, although that can also be an important aspect of healing. A psalm of lament is a prayer, a conversation. The act of speaking or writing a psalm of lament implies that someone is listening and will reply. The act of speaking 
or writing a psalm of lament implies that someone is listening and will reply. So already it makes a difference to our understanding of the psalm to understand this aspect of structure. David here is not simply speaking into the air. He's speaking to a person and not just any person. When we pray a psalm of lament, the person to whom we speak makes a difference. When we address a letter, we use a name, and if formal, we might also include a job title. Sometimes a psalmist will identify characteristics of past actions of God as part of their address, kind of like a job title. But here in Psalm 13, we only have a name. The the address in Psalm 13 doesn't look like much, but it is significant nonetheless. When we see Lord portrayed in small caps, as we do here, it's an indication that the Hebrew word used is Yahweh, the personal name of God. David here is calling on a personal relationship with God, is calling on Yahweh, who made a covenant with Israel, who anointed him as king. The name implies relationship. And most of the lament psalms call specifically on Yahweh. They call on that personal relationship. And names are significant in the culture of Israel. Names indicate the whole person, their actions, and their character. So this small name then calls to mind the entire relationship between God and Israel and everything that David knows about the person and character and actions of Yahweh in one little name. And what do we know about Yahweh? He's powerful. He's good. He listens to his people. He cares for and provides for his people. He rescues his people. He's just and he's merciful. So the first thing to understand about biblical lament is that it is directed to someone and not just any someone. A biblical lament is directed to our good, just, merciful, powerful God. Yahweh, who has made covenant with us. Jesus, who has made us family. That makes a profound difference as we turn to the complaint section of this psalm of lament. The complaint is often the most difficult part of a psalm to read and to understand. It's emotion soaked. The psalmist pours out every aspect of their situation to God. And often there is a lot of detail included. Sometimes the psalmist uses extremely strong language. There is no holding back. Every single aspect of the situation, what's going on, how it makes the psalmist feel, the questions it raises, other people involved, is laid out before God without any sense of sugarcoating. The Psalms of Lament pour out a dizzying variety of emotional complaints to God, expressing anger, confusion, fear, sorrow, despair, doubt. And here, as we've already outlined, David is struggling with feeling abandoned by God. And the questions that causes him to wrestle with are significant. He's also in peril. There is a very real and present danger, an enemy who threatens him physically, and the only way for him to stay alive is for God to be the one who sustains life in him. 
we may look at some of the language in the Psalms of Lament and actually wonder if the psalmist is just totally exaggerating. Surely the situation isn't that bad. David was probably in a bit of a rough spot, but clearly he pulled through and was able to publish this psalm. Right? We might think there's exaggeration there. Now, considering David was literally hunted by Saul for a time, I would argue that this is likely not exaggeration. But honestly, it doesn't really matter if the psalmist is exaggerating or not. What matters is that the full emotional experience of that moment is poured out into the ears of God. When we experience the darkest moments in our lives, we are consumed by them. And whether or not the way we experience something aligns fully with reality, it doesn't really change the way we experience it. When my husband and I were told that I had stage four endometriosis and that our chance of having children was 0.5%. It wasn't the end of the world. But at 6 a.m. in the morning after my surgery, when my doctor entered my hospital room and sat down on the side of my bed and told me that he had opened me up, taken a few pictures, and simply closed me up again because my case was too complex for one of the best gynecological surgeons in Western Canada to attempt, I felt like nothing would ever be right again. And the truth is, I felt that God had abandoned me. That he had shown favor to thousands of unworthy parents and left us barren. And I wondered what I had done wrong. It felt Honestly, like life would never hold happiness again. It felt like something I wouldn't survive. Now, intellectually, you could tell me that none of those emotions were true. There would be rightness in life again. God had not abandoned me. I am still able to experience happiness and joy. And sometimes we want to tell those things to people who are suffering, right? That the world is not as dark as they describe it, that life will go on, or that time will make a wound heal, or any one of a number of platitudes. And we say those things because we want people to feel better. But in the moment, the emotions need to be expressed as they are. It doesn't help to censor them. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, states this beautifully. He says, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Did you catch that? We must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. In that hospital bed, I needed to pour out every aspect of my pain to God without censoring myself, without trying to pray as I ought. 
That's what lament psalmists do in their complaint. They don't hold anything about their situation back from God. They honor the human emotions they were created with by expressing them fully. They cry out, God, you are good. I know you are just and powerful. And this, this situation, it doesn't align with who you are. It doesn't align with your plans for your creation. And then, third part, the psalmist calls on God to do something, to act. The request portion of a psalm of lament is what it sounds like. Having poured out his heart to God, the psalmist then asks God to intervene. Yahweh, good, powerful, just, merciful God, I'm in pain. I'm struggling. I'm not sure I'll make it. I feel like you've abandoned me. Do something. Every time I explore the Psalms of Lament, I am amazed all over again by how strong the language can be in the request portion of a Lament Psalm. Often, it's the command form of the verb that's used. Not, God, would you please do something to help me? Not even um, the words of Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. No, the psalmists pray, God, do something, answer me. There's no, there's no preamble. There's no like padding on that. It's an imperative form, a command directed at God. Can you see how profound that is? It's not that the psalmist feels he can order God around. Rather, the psalmist speaks out of his desperation to a God he knows has the power to intervene. Because the request portion of a psalm of lament makes a very big assumption. We only request something of someone if we know they have the ability to follow through on that request. We don't ask a toddler to help us move a piano, right? To make a request of God assumes that the God upon whom we call has the power to change a situation, no matter how desperate no matter how final it might seem. We have a God who conquered even death. And while that might seem like cold comfort when we are experiencing the utter desolation of loss, it's still our most profound hope. Because this God, the God who conquered death, allows us to call on him. He's described numerous times in scripture as the God who hears, the God who sees, and most of those references are connected to people crying out to God in the midst of suffering. God hears Israel's prayers as they suffer under slavery in Egypt, and he delivers them. God sees Hagar as she flees with her young son into the desert, and he finds her a way through. He helps her survive, no matter how feeble our cry may be. No matter how demanding we are with our requests, God hears. God sees our pain and our distress, and he does answer. Even though, like David in Psalm 13, we might experience him as absent, as hiding his face from us, even though our circumstances may actually simply remain the same, 
from that hospital bed. Oh, I pleaded with God to give me a child and he has not done so. But I know he heard me. And later, later in our journey, I was finally able to make a different request. God, you have called me to be a mother and given me no children. If I'm not to have children of my own, (laughs) you're going to need to teach me what this looks like because I can't see it. I have no idea. We weren't called to adopt, but I was called to nurture hundreds of college students at Columbia Bible College. Not that I see myself as their mom. (laughs) I try to reject that title when it gets thrown on me. But I do get to walk with them through a transitional stage of their lives. And I value that. I get to cry with them and encourage them and give them a metaphorical slap upside the head when they're being obtuse. God heard my prayer. He answered. Not in a way I would ever have expected. But I do believe that he answered my prayer. In Psalm 13, the psalmist pleads with the God who seems to have abandoned him, asking him to look and to answer. He's pulling on God's character as the living God of Israel who saw Israel's suffering and acted to deliver them, saying, look at my suffering, answer me. And the stakes are high. If God does not look and answer, David feels he will die. It is only God who can keep light in his eyes. For us, too, even though we may see no way for God to intervene and change a given situation, we can pray for him to hear us. We can pray for him to do something. We can pray for him to enter a situation that seems hopeless and find us a way through. What has most puzzled theologians about the Psalms of Lament is the final part of the four-part structure we've been walking through, the expression of trust and praise. And it's understandable that this section is puzzling because it's often in the Psalms of Laments super abrupt. Super abrupt, is that a good phrase? Why not? Here the psalmist seems to, in the space of a breath, go from pleading with God to see and hear him in his desperation to absolute trust, even joy seems impossible. Often then what theologians will do, and this is some theologians, not all theologians, but some theologians will name the first part of the psalm lament and then they chop off the last part and they call that the praise resolution. So they see it as simply kind of tacked on at the end, maybe written at a separate time as something not quite a part of the original psalm. And I think that's a mistake is I think what, what people are missing when they think that way um, is they're missing that this final part of the structure really comes from the first part that we looked at. The psalmist isn't just glossing things over. David isn't simply repeating words and phrases that he feels he has to repeat. He's resting in the person and character of the God to whom he is calling. Even though his circumstances have not changed, even though he still feels God has turned away from him. And Psalm 13 is a particularly stunning example of this because David feels, as we said, that God has betrayed him, forgotten him, turned away from him. And yet his trust 
is in God's unfailing love. Unfailing. Even at the very moment that David feels God's love has failed him, he's able to trust in God's unfailing love because he has experienced it in the past. You have been good to me, David says. Because he has intimate knowledge of God's character and actions in his life and in the life of Israel. He will sing God's praises regardless of his circumstances because God has been good to him. The address and who we speak to enables our trust and even joy. Right now, it may be difficult to see God's goodness with any clarity. He may seem far away from you. But we know, don't we, who God is from scripture, from the ways in which we see him act and move in this book, from the fact that we have a God who entered into our suffering, even unto death, in order to bring new life to all creation, from the ways we've seen God move in our own lives and in the lives of those around us. It's his character and past action that lets us point um, point out circumstances in our lives that are not in alignment with his purposes. Right? We wouldn't even see them as not in alignment if we didn't know if God is good. And his character and past action then is also the hope to which we cling when circumstances are not in alignment with him. Because faith cannot be based on our circumstances on whether or not a given situation works out in our favor or on how easy or happy our lives are. True trust goes beyond our circumstances to rest in the person and action of God, who is good even when our circumstances are not, who is powerful even when the world seems stronger. Biblical lament, then, is not a synonym for grieving, It's not a wallowing in negativity. It's not whining or simply complaining about our lives. True biblical lament is an honest prayer that brings before God circumstances that don't align with his character and his purposes for the world, that calls, therefore, on our good, powerful God to intervene, and that rests, regardless of circumstance, on the character and actions of God that we know to be true. Biblical lament says, God, you are good, powerful and merciful and just. But in Afghanistan, in Tunisia, in Surrey, in Langley, in our own lives, there's hate, there's violence, there's injustice, fear, sickness, suffering of unimaginable weight. Where are you? How long will these dark realities persist? These circumstances do not align with who you are. These circumstances do not align with your intention for creation. Do something. We trust in you. Our culture, our culture would rather plaster over pain, deny it, refuse it, numb it, And some corners of Christianity view emotion as a negative counterpart to reason 
and therefore to be suppressed and ignored. Biblical lament calls us to lay all of our emotions, all that is in us, out before the God who hears. So biblical lament gives us an example of prayer that honors human emotion by allowing the full expression of that emotion to God. Other corners of Christianity teach and model an emotion-driven faith dependent on emotional experiences to understand God is present. But lament calls us through our emotion, our emotion, not past it, not out of it. Biblical lament calls us through our emotion to rest in our knowledge of the character and action of God. Our, our emotions are valued, but they do not rule. As I move toward closing, I want to name a few things that I think biblical lament helps us with corporately and personally. Including lament in our gathered worship provides an avenue toward praise for every member of the congregation regardless of what happened in their week. It means we bring into the sanctuary with us everything we are carrying. There's no leaving it at the door so we can go in and praise Jesus and then just pick it up again when we leave. Instead, lament in worship, whether it's in a call to worship or in a prayer or a song or an entire service, gives us permission to bring all of our circumstances into the sanctuary with us and lay them at the feet of Jesus in the community of Christ. And then, instead of shouldering it ourselves again when we leave, we find the burden lightened as our community and Jesus himself share the load. Including lament in our gathered worship also gives us the words to say when we are numbed by the evil and suffering we continue to see around us in the world. It allows us to pray, come Lord Jesus, come, with real feeling. And it allows us to feel the world's needs as deeply and fully as we should while maintaining trust and peace. It keeps us from full despair. The Psalms of Lament personally give us a way into conversation with God when we are mad at him. If you've ever been really angry with God, you know how valuable that is. They give us a way into conversation with God when we feel he has abandoned us or when we're simply not sure if he's there. They let us lay our full selves before God instead of some cleaned up, washed behind the ears prayer that hardly reflects our reality. They help us with real faith rather than circumstantial faith. But the Psalms of Lament also offer us a way to walk with family and friends who are hurting. We often want so badly for things to be better for someone we love that we step right over their pain. Kind of wanna jump over the perilous water of hard questions and deep pain to some projected and imaginary lily pad of safety in the future, and it's simply too far a jump. Instead of offering a spiritual gloss of well-worn platitudes that all too often hurt rather than help, the structure of biblical lament gives us a language and a pattern for walking through the darkness alongside suffering ones. Just this past week, I discovered this all over again. 
As we learn to lament in our own prayer lives, lament becomes a blessing to us. And in the economy of God, blessing always pushes outward. So the structure of these psalms have been a gift to me, not just personally, but as I've walked alongside others. I prayed uh, the structure of lament uh, by the bedside of friends who asked me to lead worship um, after they lost a baby at term. I prayed a prayer of lament over my cousin after her baby died um, suddenly and unexplainably. And I was asked to lead in prayer at a hospital bed of a friend's mother who was dying of cancer. And again, the structure of lament is what I used. The freedom to sit beside someone in pain and simply say in prayer, I don't know. Jesus, I don't know why you would allow this to happen. That phrase alone is healing balm to someone who was thinking it anyway. These psalms resist our urge to move toward quick answers, to move toward assurance that everything will be fine. And instead, the structure of a lament allows us to sit with those who suffer, to doubt with them, to crawl down into the dark and ask difficult questions, and to reach, however tentatively, toward that glimmer, the flood of hope that the character of Yahweh provides unfailingly. The Psalms of Lament teach us in our personal lives and in our worship to honor human emotion by giving full expression to it, but they also become a spiritual discipline that trains emotion toward trust and peace in a good, merciful, powerful God who hears his people and answers. Let me pray with you. Jesus, I don't know the weight of pain that may be in the room as I speak to people even through their computer screens. I don't know how heavily events in the world are laying on various people in this congregation. I don't know what personal pain they might carry or who in their lives they might be mourning for or worried about. But you do know all of that. We don't understand why suffering continues. And especially with what we've experienced over the last year and a half, we want to ask you how long? How long? How long will people continue to be divided? How long will there be hate? How long will there be racism? How long will we watch as people flee in terror from their own homes? You are the only one who can do something. And so we ask you to move. I ask you to move in the individual situations that people might be in, their individual pain and sorrow and struggling. And I ask you to move in our world because we need you to come. And we affirm that you are good, even though what's around us so often doesn't look good. You are good. 
And even as we struggle under the weight of our world and we struggle under the weight of what has been given to us to carry personally, uh, we trust in you. We know that you are the God who agreed to be yoked with us as we walk through this world. And so we trust in you. And we ask that as you intervene, you would also pull us closer to you. I pray for this church as they um, prepare to shift their meeting plans um, in the next week, that you would give clarity, that you would give unity. And I pray a blessing on um, the staff here, that you would bless them, that you would keep them um, full of energy, that you would rejuvenate them for this next season and give them the wisdom and discernment that they need to lead well and to lead in a way that follows you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.